Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Well, welcome to another session of Stigma-Free Vet Zone. Got a very interesting guest today, falls outside of the typical MOSs for the military. Our guest today is Todd Cochran. And Todd Cochran is the CEO of Raw Voice and Blueberry. And according to Todd, he wrote the book on podcasting. Well, as he says, at least the first one podcasting. We have the first one for sure, and there's been many more since. Thanks for having me on the show, Mike. Todd is the founder of People's Choice Awards and a tech podcast network. He's also credited with introducing the first advertising into podcasting, and that is GoDaddy, who I have done a lot of work with and continue to. Cochran was inducted into the inaugural class of the Podcast Hall of Fame in 2015, but perhaps his biggest influence on podcasting is Blueberry Podcasting and its parent company, Raw Voice, which offers a directory of more than 950,000 shows, the number one plugin for WordPress, and much more. A United States Navy veteran who served 25 years and retired with the rank of senior petty officer, Cochran resides in Quincy, Michigan, having spent the majority of the past 25 years in Honolulu, Hawaii, with his family. So let's cross over the big water to Quincy, Michigan, and introduce our guest and welcome Todd Cochran. Great to have you with us. I would extend your bio a little bit by saying it was actually Blueberry and Blueberry Pro that saved us because with the introduction, we had a brand new studio for recording our podcast, but we were not allowed to use that after the COVID virus came along and we were shot down and had to isolate. So we had thought about canceling our own podcast until we were told about Blueberry and and have had nothing but professional service. And this is not an advertisement or a commercial, (laughs) nothing but professional technical experience in recording, producing and publishing our podcast. And I have learned a lot and they've put up with a lot trying to trade me and all this. <laughs> so let's get down to it, Todd. Tell us originally where you're from and, and what was life for you as a child? Yeah, originally it was really right where I am in now. I grew up in Quincy, Michigan, which was a small rural community in Southern Michigan. I think my high school graduation class was 97, so a relatively small high school here in the state of Michigan. I grew up in the country. My grandfather was a cash crop farmer, you know, 
corn, soybeans, that kinds of things. I raised some livestock, was heavily involved in 4-H and FFA when I was growing up. My father was really a ditch digger, believe it or not. He was truly, you know, they, they, people say that, but that was the exact case. He had a contracting company, did ditching and contracting work with bulldozer, backhoes, cranes. So, you know, I learned at a very early age what it was to put in a long day's work. And really, that was my childhood all the way up to the time where I went into the service when I was 19. But, you know, I, I think that having a grandfather that was a World War II vet and some of his stories, and he never saw action, but what he did was fundamental in some of the things that happened post-attack of Pearl Harbor. And he was out in Hawaii for a number of years serving there. But I don't know, I think that my childhood, you know, growing up in a community that was very patriotic, I'm not having a necessarily a, a bright future for college. The military for me seemed like a great opportunity to be able to get a skill and have an education and have something to make some money, you know? Yeah. So a lot of people that I have known have grown up on farms, raised on farms. And if you ask them about playing sports, they say, no, we didn't have the time. And and most of their things, they, they speak about getting up in the morning, early in the morning, doing their chores, getting off to school, coming home, doing their chores. And they have a little bit of a different background when it comes to religion, sports, and that sort of thing. How, how did you work that into your life? I ran track and cross country, I had the legs to go long distances and did very well at that. Of course, we grew up in a Christian family. I wouldn't say that we went to church every Sunday, but it was, you know, fundamental at the house. That you, you knew where your, I guess for a better word, your bread was buttered when it came to religion. And, you know, and having a split situation where my dad had a contracting company, my grandfather had a farm, there was, and of course, myself raising some livestock for 4-H and FFA, there was always something to do from daylight to dark and sports and that type of stuff was definitely something they encouraged me to, to participate in and I did. So now you get to the point you've had a pretty stable background, pretty stable childhood and it's getting ready. You're not going to college. How did you make a decision to enter the military and how did you make your selection? Which service to join? Yeah, you know, I was pretty, you know, having the family history of the grandfather of the Navy, I pretty much knew it was going to be the Navy and I probably made that decision Sometime maybe in my sophomore year, because at the time they allowed you to be in the delayed entry program for about almost a year. And so I went and seen the recruiter. I knew what job I wanted because I'd had a background. I'd went to Votech school in high school doing electronics. And so I thought, hey, electronics is kind of something I, I'm good at. So let me go ahead and apply. And at that time, I basically knew what I wanted. They had to find me a spot, but my ASVAB scores were high enough that they tried to make me go a nuclear propulsion. And I, I did not want to be a nuke. And you got down to MEPS and you know, talked to the classifier and they're trying to get you in a job. And I was pretty stubborn. I said, no, I, I want this type of job. I want to be this rate in the Navy. Everything is a, is a rate. And I finally had to wait a little while and had to come back to MEPS a second time after I'd been so stubborn and was able to swear in for delayed entry program as a, and to be was guaranteed school for aviation, as aviation electronics technician. And little did I know that that was a very big and correct choice for me. Excellent. So uh, just to clarify for the audience, Todd, MEPS, what are MEPS? MEPS is basically where, you, you know, you've seen the recruiter and, you know, you've made your, you know, you've done your initial paperwork. MEPS is where they send, I think, all services and where they go down and, you know, they run you through the physical and, you know, you get probed here and there and they make sure your eyesight's good and they just make sure you're physically qualified to serve. And MEPS are always seem to be in the worst part of town. So I, you know, I was downtown Detroit <laughs> in some, <laughs> some area where I was 
scared to death to go outside of the room. <laughs> what year are we now when you graduate from high school or go through this? Uh... Yeah, I went to MEPS in 82, then went in, actually uh, went to boot camp in August of 83. So I was actually on uh, delayed entry program for 10 months and 28 days. And, you know, that paid off at the end on retirement, getting a little, an extra few points on retirement side. Sure. So before we get into the military, let's just go back and speak about your family a little bit. So now Todd has come home and his grandfather's been in World War II and he's joined the Navy. Is there a big send off for you? Everybody, you know, the patriotism and honor and the flag waving and seeing you <laughs> off at the airport. And... No, I think my mom and dad, and my sister drove me to, I think there was a Burger King or something like that. And that's where the boss was picking me up and they patted me on the butt and said, good luck. And my dad basically said, don't disappoint me. And uh, off I went. So no, there was no no band or anything like that. I think it was a pretty similar experience probably to most men and women that leave for recruit duty. Interesting that your dad would make such a strong statement though, don't disappoint me. <laughs> I think a lot of us carry that, I don't want to say a burden, but that message with us, don't disappoint your family. Yeah. That, that always kind of sits there. Okay, so now you're on the bus, you're leaving Burger King for probably the last time <laughs> in a bunch of years. And Take us through introduction to the military, where you're going, how you're sleeping at night, adjusting. <laughs> of course, they get you into Great Lakes about midnight, you know, and roll you off the bus. And it's a standard thing there. You know, there's a company commander out there screaming at you. It's not like having a drill sergeant, but it's, you know, it's a Navy guy equivalent of that, that that's trying to do his best to put on that drill sergeant demeanor and they run you around and you know, you get to your, you do a piss test because they started doing, you know, testing for drugs. And I remember getting a little stage fright because there's like four guys behind me looking in a mirror, watching me, you know, pee in a bottle. So that was kind of my first, you know, first introduction there. I'm thinking, oh boy, we're not in Kansas anymore. So, and then the very early morning, wake up with the typical, you know, kick the garbage can down the aisle and, you know, drop your, you know, beep and uh, grab your socks and let's go. So that was really kind of the same thing. You know, it's the same thing. Everyone that goes through, you know, that first day, I think we all probably can remember that going to recruit training and then the rest of it's just a blur, but I did okay. So that, so there you're getting your physical training. You're actually being, oh, turned into one of the, one of the team and right. uh, Todd is left at home or supposed to stay at home while you join the Navy. All right. And so how long does that training go on? I think if at the time, I think it was eight weeks, if I remember correctly, then, you know, a big pomp and circumstance ceremony and, you know, you're, you get a little more freedom. And then I think there was, you know, family was there, of course, get to spend a couple of days with them and, and then off to uh, what we call A school training. The Navy has, you know, intermediate training after boot camp that you go to to get your specialist training. So uh, let me just ask you this quick. Is everything kind of following exactly what the recruiter told you it would be? You know, I, my recruiter was pretty good. I remember him by name and I don't swear when I uh, say his name. So, you know, I got a, I was pretty much told the, the real deal. The mystery came later. <laughs> okay. Well, guide us toward the mystery. <laughs> so, you know, I'm doing, because I'd had a background in electronics, I was already ahead of the ball game when it come to the training because I knew much I'd already spent two years in Votech school and it was computer based and you were testing and I was five or 600 hours ahead of the computer and been able, you know, and in, in training to be able to secure early on Fridays. And, but one Wednesday, some guy came into the training room and said, any of you guys like because it was about 95% men in at that time, at least the mix of men to women and say, any of you guys want to fly? And I'm thinking, I'm not an officer how can I fly? And he says, if you want to be air crew, follow me. And I'm like, well, let's go check this out. 
And he took me over to the airfield on the north side of Millington, where I was at. And I crawled up into this Hawkeye and I smelled those electronics and I was home. And, you know, they say never volunteer yourself, but boy, I couldn't sign the paperwork fast enough to become air crew and had to do some swim tests and make sure that I could, as a sailor, could actually swim. And believe it or not, most of us couldn't swim that well. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, you had to pass a certain criteria and got through that and then follow on orders out of school, basically send me to my next level of training which most guys don't get. Most guys just go on to the ship or wherever they may be stationed at. But I got orders to Pensacola to go through air crew training school. And then the job I was going to get, I really didn't know a lot about. I was tasked to be electronic warfare operator in P3s. And I went to Corey Station and attended electronic warfare operator school. So, you know, and, and really by the time I got done with all my training, it, it was about a year. So, so when we're saying P3s, just to- Yeah, P3s, yeah. P3 Orion. Yeah. Oh, so we're talking about a fixed wing airplane. Yep. Yep. So fixed wing. So I, you know, I got my ticket away from the ship instead, you know, bought myself a 25 year ticket to being in land-based Navy bases. And so when I got my orders it was kind of interesting though, the guy looked at my orders and he said, Oh, and I'm like, well, what does that mean? He said, well, you're going to Guam. And I'm like, where's Guam? And he had a world map and we couldn't even find Guam on the world map. It's over here somewhere. And I said, what am I going to be doing there? And he said, well, they'll tell you when you get there. And that's the way it was. When you were at home in Quincy, Michigan, growing up, did you travel with your family at all? Or, or did you speak about world events at the dinner table? Or You know, we were, you know, the center of the universe was a county. And, you know, we had went to like Disneyland and a few trips, but nothing too exotic, you know, no, nothing overseas. We didn't have, you know, we were poor. We didn't have the budget for it. We had vacation was once every five years. And if you're lucky, you got to stay someplace a couple nights in a hotel. Yeah. So if you or your family were sitting down for dinner, would you speak about current events around the world and what was happening in China or what was happening in Russia? 1984, I think we're right in the middle of Cuba, no, the Cuban Missile Crisis passed. But did you talk about the international affairs or was it more what the animals were doing, whose chores were what, yeah. when was your next track meet, that sort of thing? Yeah, that kind of stuff. And, you know, my dad was, why didn't you get out to the shop earlier? Why were you, you know, <laughs> lollygagging around? You know, it was more, but no, international stuff, none. There was none of that discussion. He was too worried about, you know, having enough jobs lined up to keep his employees paid. So that, you know, that was discussion. My mom was the one that was really kind of the one that talked about worldly topics. And it was really about the pyramids. And we had big discussions about big things in the world. But and that, that was probably the extent of it. Okay, so take us back. So now you're in Pensacola and you're getting ready to go on to where? On to Guam. And so, you know, I arrived in Guam and, you know, typical thing, you got your sea bag and whatever else you can carry by hand. The guys that picked me up immediately took me to a strip bar. We didn't even go to the barracks. <laughs> and so that was my first day introduction into arriving in Guam. But very, very quickly, I learned that the squadron that I was in had two different types of airplanes. They had P3s and A3s. And the A3 was the Sky Warrior. It was on the carrier. P3s were obviously land-based. And you really weren't designated which aircraft you're going to until you got there and they made a decision on you. So, you know, there's, there's moments in your life. It's like the right door, left door type of situation. And uh, me and another guy walked in to see this old burly chief. Uh, named, his name, I remember clearly, remember this moment like it was yesterday. His name was Vic Hatcher and uh, AT uh, chief there. And I walked in and he said, Cochran, you're going uh, A3s. And the other guy's name was Peterson and his nickname was Mongo. Mongo, you're going P3s. 
And Mongo said, well, I wanted to go A3s. And I said, well, I wanted to go P3s. And he switched our names on that paper right there. (laughs) Michael, that was a defining moment because that spot was that right door, left door and got in the right door, got on the right track and then spent the next couple of years learning my trade. BQ1 was a squadron that was in the news a few years ago. Matter of fact, more than a few years ago, 10 plus years ago. They are the ones that had the midair collision with the aircraft off Hanan Island in China and the P3 aircraft, the EP3 aircraft essentially emergency landed there. And the crew was taken into custody and spent a couple of weeks there. I was actually lucky enough, and that's, you know, moving forward many years, but I was actually lucky enough to be on the debriefing team of that crew coming back. But I spent two tours flying in the EP3s and we had a saying, and God, we trust all of those we monitor and we did our job very well. And it was, you know, flying up and down coast, of course, and doing things. But I had a couple of shore duty tours in between, but it was a pretty rewarding job in those early days. Let me just ask you this. So when you get to Guam, you've left training. What rank are you and what is your job? You're not a pilot. No, I'm an I'm a, I'm a E3, basically just a petty officer third class, but I had an AT rank I'd been or AT rating. In the Army or Marines, you'd be an MOS of something. I had a NEC, several NECs. So I would go on to earn more NECs based on the flying job. But at the core, I was an aviation electronics technician, E3. Actually, when I arrived, it was E3. I didn't, it wasn't a petty officer until later. So would that be the same, just trying to get a sense of being on that plane? You've got the pilot or two pilots. Are you what's called the flight engineer? No, no. There's The P3 had, the EP3 had a crew of 22. Oh, my so goodness. So I was just one of the guys in the back of the tube running gear. And the, and the flight engineer would have been a, typically oh. would have been a, an AD, which is a, a mech, someone that was a wrench turner. I was more of a, you know, chase the wires and operate the equipment in the back. Interesting. So, so, so go on, tell us more. So anyway, I, you know, did the two tours in BQ1, just about had enough of that squadron, uh, ended up in Maryland working at the Naval Research Laboratory, was flying all over the world, dropping sauna boys, mapping the ocean currents and temperatures and doing stuff for NOAA and all kinds of little special projects. And I had wanted to go work at Squadron in Hawaii. It was entitled VPU-2, Special Projects Unit 2. I'd wanted to go there very badly, and I was trying to get orders. This is in the 96, 97 timeframe, and you had to really kind of get past some of the people there to get an invite to come to the squadron. And I called a guy, his name's Jim Agresti. He's dead now. He passed away a number of years ago. And I said, Jim, you know, I want to, I just want it on the line. I said, you know, if you guys around there know my reputation, do you want me? I'm not going to ask twice. If you say, yep, we want you, I'll apply. If not, I won't apply. And he said, well, let me get back to you in a couple of days. And he called me back a couple of days. And he said, yep, we want you. Go ahead and apply. We'll, we'll, we'll sign off on it. And in early 1997, with two kids in hand and a wife, we left Maryland and uh, transferred to Honolulu. Well, I'll bet your, your wife had a different vision of where she was going in Honolulu than you did. <laughs> well, she was Okinawan, so for her, she had some extended family there. So she was okay. thrilled that we were going to Honolulu. And what was the attraction to that? That, that I'm Army, so yeah, that job. You know, for me, I'm Army, so division. So if you apply to be a SEAL and you become a SEAL, the SEAL guys want to be in SEAL Team 6. It's kind of like that's where you, you know, a lot of SEALs want to be on that team. If you are a Ranger and you want to go Delta and be a Delta, that's, you know, that's where you go to be, you know, if you apply. And, and so it's kind of that upward mobility. And in the, in the job that I was in, 
having the background I did in intelligence, that was the squadron to go to. That was the job. That was the ultimate job for my for my flying career. And so for me, it was really a dream come true to get into that unit. So to be with the best of the best. Yeah. And what's cool about it is, is everyone was vetted. And you end up with a team that, well, it made it more interesting when you're trying to compete for ratings because everyone is a stroker. There's, you had very few slackers in that squadron. Everyone was, was pretty motivated. So with, with that motivation, does this also offer you the opportunity to see more sophisticated equipment? Yeah. Yeah, so much of it, I can't even talk about it. It really, the best way to describe it is it's most incredible R&D platform in the world. And it's, a, it's an awesome platform for, for what it does. I know we want to be a little bit careful and, and respect your, your anonymity there. But so, so where you've gotten here, are you still believing in the mission of the military? Are you proud? Are you still under the patriotism? Are you still part of the team, happy with your, your decision to go into the military? And now how far into your 25 years are you? Yeah, at that time, I was completely motivated. I was, I was all in for the team. And of course, this was prior to 9-11. And so, you know, I did that job aggressively for seven to eight years. I never left the squadron. I, I stayed there. And really, I left involuntarily because of an, an accident, medical accident in 2004. But to be frank, it was, it was a great job. And we worked hard. I mean, we, you know, my deployment cycles were incredibly stressful on the family because I was deploying 300 plus days a year. Now, obviously, in most cases, I was at a place where I could drink a beer at the end of the day. It wasn't like being on a ship, but we would go for 30, 60 days someplace, come back, you know, three weeks, four weeks, and be back on the road again. So the deployment schedule on that job was tough, but great gut, bunch of guys to work with, doing exciting stuff. You know, then 9-11 happened. Let me just ask you this, and, and if I get a little bit too close, just let me know. When you're sent on these deployments, you know where you're going. You know what the job is. You know if you're in danger. Was your wife ever, how were deployments for her psychologically? Did she know where you were? Did she know if you were safe? Was there any support groups for her, or is that something that we should leave alone? No, you know, she did not know where we were going, but what's funny is the government credit card that you're using built house <laughs> in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and so she can read the credit card uh, slip and see where you have been. So, it, you know, it's, it's kind of this funny thing. Don't tell your wife where you're going, but then the credit card bill comes home. So we would never say they would know, but they, she also know her responsibility too. She know her responsibility to not talk about where I was at or, you know, how long I would be gone. And, you know, she was a team player when it came to that. And she was, a, you know, from a military spouse standpoint, you know, military spouses are a unique breed and some are cut out to be military spouses, some are not. She was, and we did fine. But from a support standpoint, she did use the family services from time to time to take some classes and, you know, trying to learn how to read my LES and that kind of stuff. But she was pretty independent, didn't need a lot of emotional support, but it was there if she needed it. But we were so op secret that when we came home, there was no band. It was, you know, welcome home, clap you on the back. We'll see you tomorrow or we'll see you in three days or whatever they gave you off between the time you got back and he went back to work. So it was, you know, there was never, as you see these guys coming back from deployment, there's marching bands. There was sure. never any of that for us ever, ever. So middle of the night, one of the side <laughs> accesses to the airport and down the, the back ramps and out the back door. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about your children? Did, did they 
at what what age are they now and how are they doing yeah. with your with your service so they were still young and my son my youngest son is 16 so he wasn't in the scene yet the other two were pretty young if i think about age wise when i got to hawaii 97 my first son was just a just a baby he was still in the car seat and then my daughter was two or three when we got to hawaii and then of course i spent 25 years in hawaii but, you know, they grew up there. That was home for them. But, you know, the relationship, it, it, and a lot of military guys see this, the relationship I have with my first two children is different than the child that I had that grew up largely after I retired just because of the deployment cycles and being home for that stuff. So, you know, I think we've all in the military experienced that. So, you know, you have to work hard for those ones that, you know, you miss so many literally years of their life. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So now we have had a conversation about your, your tours of duty. And one of the things that I think is really important and valuable in your experience, Todd, is this whole idea that you are out there supporting the troops. Most of the to troops don't know this. You're on these missions, operations, I guess you would call them, that are supporting the troops. And yet, as you say, you've got to keep this quiet. You're coming in the back door at the airport. You're not getting the recognition. You're not getting the pat on the back. Was that difficult for you? And what of those operations can you share so that people would appreciate the fact that it's not just the guys on the ground with the, you know, the, the camouflage uniform and, you know, carrying the machine guns and riding on the tanks and Bradleys and everything else. There's a whole another group and support group. And, and again, we spoke about this before, and that's every MOS or every job in the military is extremely busy and extremely important to, to the end result, but you don't always get the recognition. So could you share a little bit about that, how you felt supporting the guys, how, how important your job was to you envisioning the people on the ground? Yeah, without naming any like theaters or anything like that, you know, you think about an operation that goes down. Let's say there's a ground force that's going to do an infill via helicopters on a on a compound or, you know, they're, they're going to take something down. There's usually a couple layers of onion there. There's maybe a, a gunship that's, uh, you know, on the inner circle that's keeping an eye on things. Maybe it isn't a gunship. Maybe it's an Apache or, you, you, you know, you get the idea. You have this, typically you would have a, and depending on the profile of whatever that target may be, Sometimes those guys are in, you know, they roll up in a six pack and they're alone and they don't have no support. And I, just as an example, I, I think that what you have to realize is the guys on the ground know that there's support there for them, whether it be me and the asset that I was in or someone else. And things could get pretty crazy from time to time. And you're basically providing, you're covering six and you're, you're trying to make sure that everyone's going to be safe and there's, there's not going to be external factors that's going to cause a, an issue. So from that perspective, and I guess without any detail at all, the analogy I like to make it is, is when a, when a jet fighter gets a target a package called in and he's going to do a strike and let's say he's going to drop a J down. There may be a guy down on the ground that's lazing a target and the pilot comes through and from that buddy lays, he, he drops a J down and, you know, drops a 500 pound bomb on something or someone. And the jet pilot is gone before that bomb even hits the ground. And he may not know until later what the result of that was, or he heard it over the radio or whatever. The eyeballs that you may have on a target, depending on where you're at in the stack and the altitude and everything else, you might just see a flash, you know? So some of that is disconnected from the guys in the air, but you know that something has just occurred, but you're not like the trooper that's on the ground that might be seeing the end result of that and the carnage that was taken forth. And I'm not really going to go into detail on the level of 
what I could observe. I just say that there are missions to support troops on the ground that are going on every day of the week, every day of the year, even at this point in time, this many years later, and everyone has a, has a role to play. All right. At the same time, I don't want to get too far into this. There's still a psychological effect. There's still the imagination in your imagination. Like you say, you see the, the, the blast of light, but you're not on the ground. You don't hear the voices. You don't hear what people are saying, you, you know, the, the chaos or, or the smells and all of that sort of thing. But psychologically, the importance of your mission is what makes it justifiable. And, you know, and, and at the same time, you have, I was asked when I was getting ready to retire, when I was going through transition class, the uh, gal asked me, she said, do you have any regrets? And I said, yeah, I have one. It's the one that got away. And I got this weird look, right? And the crux of that is, is I was left with a clear conscience on anything that I worked on. I'll just leave it at that. Being that there was no regrets because as a word, maybe let's say I had enough knowledge of the situation in the end when it was resolved, I didn't have something on my conscience that something went sideways. Now, I know that some of my shipmates had suffered some some issues, you know, some regrets, and that is probably a topic that I don't know if we want to dive into, but I, I'll say this, I, I don't think I left the military with really any regrets for the mission that I did. And I think that's really important, Todd. There be the element that you believed in the mission, you understood these guys were on the ground, these troops were on the ground, that what you were doing was required for their safety and for the success of any mission and, and for the success of them getting to and getting back from their mission safely. Beyond that, there's some really evil people in the world. And the mission that was out there was largely trying to eliminate those evil people. So yeah, I had no regrets and no no qualms and... I guess, and I didn't pull a trigger, but, you know, to use an analogy, I, I didn't regret pulling any triggers. And again, I didn't pull a trigger. So I'm just using it as an analogy. Well, it's an analogy, but I, even the man who puts the fuel in the, in the airplane is part of pulling the trigger. That's, That's what right. I mean, where, where every MOS is qualified. If you were to go back to the guy who fixed the flat tire on your airplane, it's all part of completing the business successfully. Now, you raise another interesting point, which is not familiar to a lot of us, and that's you had these training classes before leaving the military. As you're getting ready to leave the military, you're receiving classes. Yeah, it got pretty, it's been in place for quite a while. And I retired in 2007. And I had to think back there for a second. So at least 10 years before that, they have what's called Transition Assistant Program, TAP. That's at least what the Navy called. And you have a week's worth of class. They even bring the spouses in to say, okay, this is, you know, what you're entitled to. And the, you know, you need, when your husband retires, you get, you know, the, you can, you can have to sign off on the spousal insurance and these are the resources and they help you, you know, with your resume, they help you if you have any coping issues, all the stuff that you need to do for the VA really kind of got you ready to make that transition to back to civilian life. Wow. And was it helpful in the long run? You know, what's funny is I had really started my personal transition about three years before I retired. <laughs> so I was pretty much on track, but there was a lot of guys that, you know, they had done no planning and they were really kind of like in a panic. So I do feel it was a good class and good resource because they give you really everything you need to do to start. You know, lots of stuff you need to follow up on. But, you know, one of the things I failed on is I didn't submit my VA paperwork until after I retired. I could have done it 60 days 
prior to retiring. So I had to wait a little longer for my VA stuff, but I think that it was good. And I think the military is much, much better at doing that now. So now you've, you've had your, your 25 years, you've had your, your classes for re-entering civilian life. Are you anxious to get going? Are you motivated? What are you expecting now when you leave the military? And, and how difficult is that transition after 25 years? Well, I had a job offer on the table. And what's kind of weird is I started this podcasting thing in 2004. And I'm starting to build a business while still active duty. And I actually had a one person on my team go full time before I even retired, but we weren't making enough money to pay me a salary. So when it came to re- time to retire, I kind of, I was a subject matter expert in a specific system. And the group that I worked with asked me to come on as a tech rep. And I did. So I transitioned out of my military job, took 90 days off, went really right back to the desk I was sitting at and operated as a tech rep while building a business on the site. So I didn't have much time to sleep. I went from working 16 hours a day to working 16 hours a day. (laughs) At the same (laughs) desk. (laughs) Well, you know, do the regular job and then go home and build a business. So so balancing those two was was a challenge and then ultimately i made the transition full time to my to what i'm doing now as the ceo of the company and and building this business and keeping 23 employees a paycheck you know keep them going so i think for me and and another thing that really kind of set me up was i had gotten hurt in 2004 i'd broke my back grounding me couldn't fly no more and uh, it was not a combat it was a swimming pool accident on deployment stupidest thing ever i spent 13 days in the hospital there there's two hour story worth that alone but you know when you break yourself in the military and the eyeballs are on you you either got to get busy and find a job to do or they're going to find an exit door for you so I got busy and founded basically babysitting airplanes in Waco, Texas, doing contract contract enforcement. I was basically babysitters of uh, airplanes being modified. And what it really did then is because I then started working with a lot of civilians. So I kind of had this exposure to the military side and the civilian side, civilian workforce, trying to understand their politics, how it was different from the military politics, and then building a business and learning those politics. So it was really this kind of like, I got it from all sides. So by 2007, when I retired, I was very easy for me to hang up the uniform and then put on the suit. A lot of guys have a very hard time making that transition. Yes, they do. We're speaking today with Todd Cochran, who is the CEO of Raw Voice and Blueberry Podcasting and his experience in the Navy and been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. One thing, a couple of more questions quickly for you, Todd. Did you have friends that you stay in touch with after the military? And does that experience in the military remain uniquely something for yourself or, or has it pretty well integrated into your civilian life? I mean, does that stand out for, for a lot of us? Uh, I remember the day I went into the military. How does that work for you? You know, I've got buddies that are in various states across the country that I served with, flew with. They'd, if they called me five minutes from now and Todd said, Todd, I need you to come bail me out of jail, I'd get in my car and go bail them out. And they would do the same for me. If I need help, if I was in distress, if I, I've got some lifetime, we're all doing different things, but there is this definitely a core group of men and women that I served with over the years that, you know, it's, it's, it's a brotherhood no matter what, you know, no what service you, and you have a brotherhood of, and sometimes it's not completely cross service because you've got your own group of folks that you're working with in your job. And I had the group of folks I was working with my job, but yeah, lifetime friends. And, you know, we follow each other on Facebook. We bust each other's guts when we can. And, you know, I have one guy, that friend of mine, that he got hooked up with Morgan Stanley and he's working in New York. He's got a highfalutin job. So I'm always 
busting on the guy about how he's went full corporate and we tease each other back and forth. But I think that in the end, if I call him up and say, hey, Dan, I, I, I need help, he'd, he'd drop everything and come help me. I think that's just the way it is. I feel very strong about that. I think most of us who are in the military feel that, that brotherhood, sisterhood, that uh, camaraderie. And, and it, yes, it may expand over, over the different services, but, but even within the military, even within the army, for example, I was infantry. I'm going to be much closer to guys who are in the infantry. That, that's just uh, the same as your high school reunion. You're only going to the high school reunion of the school you went to, yet you appreciate that a lot of schools have high school reunions. You know, it's kind of funny, though. You, it's like the Navy guys and Marine guys will always be fighting each other. But if there was someone that come in and talk smack about the Marines, it wasn't a Marine, we'd all, <laughs> all, we'd, up all we'd, we'd yeah. all quit swinging and go after the other person, you know, so not yes, you would. Either, you know and, what I mean? I, I do it. And, and your wife would get the credit card bill for that too. So <laughs> she would know where you were and what you were doing. If there was something that you wanted to share with anyone who's been in the military and has come home as you have taken charge, I think probably being in the military has directed you to be the leader of your own company. What would you share with veterans in their transition from the military to civilian life and the experience of the military? Well, you know, I think that every person's circumstances is different. And I was, I had plenty of exposure after I retired to folks that had a hard time making the transition. So the sooner you can really make that cut line where you can appreciate your service, you can have your buddies, you can appreciate the good times you had. But when you move into the civilian sector, we, we have to realize that they will never, ever, 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 ever understand what you had as an active duty person, whether it be an officer, enlisted, doesn't matter. So they will not relate. They can't relate. You're, you're the foreign substance in their life because you're this weird bird coming in that has had the military experience and they haven't. So be slow to judge. Be patient. Understand that they're not used to taking orders, that you do have to play the game a little bit when it comes to corporate America or wherever you're at. We're so used to being able to, if things really get, you know, when I was a senior chief, you know, obviously we would have to direct orders of people to do stuff directly from time to time, but it wasn't like I order you. Very few people would ever have to do that. And actually, I think bad leaders in the military would usually I would agree before someone would tell me, I order you, you know, very rarely would you do that. But you have to remember that they have never, ever had to take direction or be responsible for other people's lives. I think when we make this transition to the civilian world, we have to understand them more than they have to understand us. We understand each other. We shouldn't make it a requirement that they have to understand us. I think if you take that to heart and can make that clean transition and leave the uniform hung up in the closet and not desire to put it on at three o'clock in the afternoon and yell at somebody because it didn't go so well on the job. It takes a lot of patience coming from active duty to civilian because it's not military anymore. It's just how the world really lives today. And I think that's probably the best advice I can give anyone is, you know, make that cut, make that transition and you understand them. Don't make them understand you. I'm not so certain that anyone who wasn't in the military could give better advice than that. I think it's it's that experience in the military and the experience of leaving the military and returning to civilian life and the years of being back in civilian life that you would pass that information on. And, and I think it's very, very important. I might add to that too, that the same way that we were educated or went through education to enter the military and learn our different MOSs or different jobs, 
I think it's really important to understand that when you come home, you might need some education on how to make the transitions for any response you might have unexpectedly had in the military that you you were not uh, familiar with. So don't, don't be afraid to think of it as re-educating yourself to enter into civilian life. But what you have just shared, Todd, is, is very, very beautifully stated, powerfully stated, and, and the absolute truth. So again, I want to thank Todd Cochran for joining us this afternoon. Todd Cochran is the CEO of Raw Voice and Blueberry. And, and I want to thank Todd again for his company coming to help us with our podcast when our podcasts were actually going to be stopped because of the COVID virus. And his team with Kate and the other people in Iris and Taylor, who have all been very, very helpful with the technology that we couldn't provide ourselves. It's, it's been a, a real savior for us. So I appreciate that. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. And, and thanks for employing so many people in this world, is especially at this time. If, if there are any vets out there that are actually looking for work, Todd at Blueberry.com, send me your resume. We have a huge, this podcasting well, space reaches a huge number of people. So drop me your resume if you're looking for a job. Oh, absolutely. And, or they can contact me and we can put you in touch with them. They can go to our foundation page. If you look up Stigma Free Vet Zone, the podcast, you will find a contact for us and you can get to Todd with that. But it's very, very valuable. And we thank Todd and we thank Blueberry and Blueberry.pro and all the people that are with them. So thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. And I hope this podcast is one of your more favorite that you share with your, with your large portfolio of people out there. So thank you, Todd. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.